and the idea was, can we bring manufacturing back to the United States? I actually slightly disagree with that theme. Our goal should be, how do we create new manufacturing in the United States? How do we keep the United States on the forefront of innovation in manufacturing so we're always ahead? If another country has manufacturing capability that we somehow lost, maybe it's because we're not good at it. Maybe they're good at it. You know, let's play to our strengths. Now, of course, if there's deficiencies in our manufacturing base, we should address them, fix them so we can be as strong as possible. But I think the goal of these institutes should be, be the innovators of manufacturing. Hey everyone, welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today, Howie Chosett, is one of the leading roboticists in the world. He has translated the work in his biorobotics lab into multiple successful startup technology companies and is famous for his robots that move like snakes. In this conversation, we talk about all that. We talk about how he has continued to attract and retain talented people to work with him and how to translate sci-fi into reality. You're going to love it. I learned a lot. Here is how he chose it. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Howie, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I'm excited to be talking with you. Oh, thank you. What are you exploring in the biorobotics lab that, you know, is, is genre-defining within the context of robots? So I co-direct a lab called the Biorobotics Lab here at Carnegie Mellon. And we have a really broad research agenda. And what I like about it is that we run the pipeline from basic research to applied research all the way to deployment and, in some cases, outreach and commercialization. And that feeds back on itself and informs what the basic research questions we should be looking at. Now, I think what separates our research, our lab, from, say, some others is that we try to look at the fundamentals. Many times it's just the basic math. And we reduce complicated problems to simpler ones that we can then address, solve, optimize, and even design for. Every so often, we may look at biology, because the name of our lab is the Biorobotics Lab. We may look at biology for some clues to help us in this process. And even better, sometimes our analysis informs what the biologists are trying to figure out. So it's a dual illumination that goes both ways. But ultimately, we look at reducing complicated problems to slimper ones that we can then address, solve, advance understanding to build better robots that can go to more places than previously otherwise could not. Let me try to say that back to you and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here. But, you know, by studying uh, bio biological animals or some sort of mechanism with a kind of intense detail, with the aim of building something that could actually move in a similar way, you're almost acting as a biologist in a way that a conventional biologist wouldn't necessarily be. They're not trying to recreate that action in a mechanical form. So we're often asked, you know, so we, my, my research group builds a lot of snake robots. You know, if you look at them, you know, picture a snake in your head, convert it to metal, and you have a snake robot. And we're often asked, you know, do you look at biology and try to mimic biology? And the immediate answer is no. 
Okay, snakes have 200 vertebrae in their back. You know, if you take a cross-section of a snake, there's 21 muscles. There's all these technologies in the biology that we're not going to be able to replicate for a very, very long time. However, in order to make these robots work, we had to, again, take recourse to the fundamental mechanics to get these robots just to crawl down the street, climb a pole, or go through pipes. And in figuring that out, we were able to shed some light on how biological systems also move. So in a sense, we do look at biology, but what we really do is we develop fundamentals. And the fundamentals that we develop to make the robots work, we use those fundamentals to look at biology. And with those fundamentals in hand, we then better understand biology. And then biology will return the favor to us so we can make better robots. And so how did you get on this path specifically. I, I heard you in a, in a previous video talk about how after get, going through Caltech, you were attracted to CMU, partially because of the top universities, it was the youngest, the newest. So there was a, a maybe arguably different energy from an innovation standpoint there. But why specifically this path as it pertains to the application of robotics? So I went to graduate school many years ago uh, in California, Los Angeles uh, to Caltech. And while I was there, my advisor, his name is Joel Burdick, and his graduate student, uh, Greg Trichian, who went to Johns Hopkins, and now he's a department head in Singapore, they're the ones who, who built uh, this snake robot. And I looked at it, and I thought, oh, that's what my thesis work is going to be on. So then when I came to Carnegie Mellon, I created a comprehensive research program around this snake robot. And I was really lucky enough to have students you know, be attracted to these ideas and to my group to really build the program up. The truth is, when I say I built this comprehensive research program, that's not really true. I was lucky enough to have students uh, literally fall into my lap and build up these ideas, solve great problems, and help me put the jigsaw puzzle together. And one of the applications of that has been a uh, medical use case. I was looking at the snake robots from a medical standpoint. The, you know, the argument is you can enter a body from a surgical standpoint through less invasive means, Colon-related procedures were one that was have been experimented with for that type of technology. When do you come to the realization that this is something with a potential commercial application is worth spinning out as its own independent entity and not just remain in the domain of academic research? So I feel like you asked a couple of questions, but I'll ask the last one first because that's probably the one I remember. So I always had an interest in entrepreneurship. In fact, my undergraduate degree, I have two of them. One's in computer science and the other is in business from, from the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School of Business in entrepreneurial management. So I always knew I wanted to start a company. And then at Carnegie Mellon, the university is incredibly supportive of entrepreneurship. You know, it's almost that they want our faculty to go out and start companies and you know, look at the track record that, that, that we have. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing, especially most recently with the self-driving cars. So entrepreneurship was always on my mind. And I had been working with a couple of local economic development organizations. And it's, it's kind of funny. I knew I wanted to start a company, but I wasn't ready to start a company on the medical robot yet, on the medical snake robot. And I was, and I was giving this talk, and this guy in the back, his name is Bill Thomas Meyer, started heckling me, started saying, you should start a company. I said, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. And we argued. I was like, really annoyed because he's arguing in front of these other people. And then I walked out of the room. I was like, oh, my God, Bill's right. So that's when the idea of my, my postdoc, his name is uh, Alan Wolf, and my clinical collaborator, Marco Zanotti. Alan is now 
at a university in Israel called the Technion, and Marco is in is in Boston, still a surgeon. So, we you know we, we just looked at each other and said, hey, we should spin this off in, into a company. And I have to say, we did it at the right time because the basic research that we were doing together w- was nice, but there's no way we could have brought the technology to a readiness level where we can operate on people, let alone clear the FDA. It had to be thrown over the fence to a, a, a private company. Uh, in this case, the company that we started, and then we were again fortunate enough to attract people to advance the technology as well as the medical side and interface it with the hospitals and, and so forth. But, you know, outside of maybe some extreme sci fi to propose a robotic snake that might. always been an aspiration for all surgical procedures. You know, if you get surgery, you're cut open and it hurts. Not a fun time. Oh, yeah, it hurts a lot. And you expose yourself to other risks, you know, such as infection. So if you can reduce that incision down to something small, like less than an inch, it, it hurts less. It also costs less. You don't, you don't need all the support of a surgical suite. And you have the opportunity to disseminate medical care to people who otherwise couldn't get it, because now you don't need to be in a center of medical excellence. The thing with minimally invasive surgery is that you're limited to a laparoscope. It's a rigid linear device, so it's like you're operating through a straw. Or you have an endoscope. Okay, the endoscopes are flexible, but the problem there is they buckle easily. So a laparoscope, you can only access places within line of sight of the incision. And if you have laparoscopic surgery, you'll need as many as maybe eight incisions. In fact, my, my, my cousin just had to get laparoscopic surgery. I saw him uh, yesterday, and he showed me his scars. He had eight scars on his belly. And it's, he said it's like getting stabbed eight times. Still better than getting a full eight-inch incision. With endoscopes... Since they buckle easily, you're only limited to what's called the luminal tracts, like, like your intestines, let's say. A surgical snake robot has the best of both worlds. It's both rigid and you can steer wherever you want to go. So think of it as a steerable endoscope or, excuse me, think of it as a steerable laparoscope or an endoscope that can be made rigid whenever you want. And because of that capability, you can now access the intracavity spaces that were otherwise out of reach of conventional medical minimally invasive medical devices. So you can do a heart surgery without cracking the sternum, for example. You can do surgery at the base of your throat without breaking the jaw, because now you can get into places and still have the rigidity, the staging, in order to do something. As it pertains to the constraints, though, that would have made that impossible in a later time, is it smaller motors, denser packets of, of computer chips, better batteries? Like what, what would you attribute that being possible now? So... A funny story about how we conceived of this design was we thought of it, you know, almost you know, 18 years ago. And at the time, everybody who was trying to make a smaller you know, snake robot, they all focused on trying to make a smaller actuator, a smaller motor. That was, that was the, the idea of make the motor nice and small, then you can build a little robot out of it. And people had these ideas for EPAM, electronic polymer something. I forget what EPAM stands for. And, and, th- and these were all nice work, they were, but they were exotic actuation technologies. And we started thinking to ourselves, you know, what can we do with conventional actuation, with motors that you have today? And we actually came up with a design that w- was pretty simple. And in fact, it's so simple, people look at it and go, I, I can't believe this was first invented now. Because it could have been, been built in the, in the 80s easily. And then some people who looked at it said, I can't believe you thought of that. And then some people look at them and get mad. You thought of that? You know, why didn't I think of it? So for the surgical snake robot, there really was no 
mechanical advance per se that had to happen you know, in, in the new millennium. It could have been sooner. So it wasn't smaller actuators that, that advanced it. I think improvements in computing helped a lot, making, uh, making computing smaller just so we can have a more portable device. I think advances in algorithms also helped a lot. So, so one of the things that we spent a lot of time working on is restoring situational awareness. So when you had open surgery, a surgeon cut you open and was able to look and say, ah, oh, there's your heart, there's whatever, okay. But with minimally invasive surgery, you're operating through a straw again, so you can only see so much. So how do you restore that situational awareness that's lost? So we, so we and others too have developed lots of algorithms to bring that situational awareness back. And that has been further accelerated by the development of better sensors, smaller sensors. Onboard computation, we're starting to see some benefits there too. But I can't say, you know, because in 2003, whatever company built this, all of a sudden we were able to build our robot. Gotcha. It still has taken a while though. And I think that that is, you know, across the span of entrepreneurial ventures that we cover on this show, um, it's, I think it's the Bill Gates quote, you uh, overestimate what you can do in a year, underestimate what can happen in 10. I think you're on an even more, uh, I guess the 10 years was the timeline. So uh, Med, Med Robotics, according to my research, was founded in 2005. 2015 was when it finally received clearance from the FDA for these type of internal procedures. How did you manage like your own patients going through that? I, I'm sure to some degree, you come in eyes wide open. It's a federal regulator. They're not going to be you know, rip-roaringly fast? So there's a couple of things there. I, I think going from invention to actual commercial self-sustaining use is a whole set of challenges onto itself, which I find very interesting. You know, how is innovation disseminated? And, and, and that, there's all sorts of examples. You know, you know, when factories went from steam engines to gas engines, they still laid them down as if they were steam engines. You know, our electric vehicles, you know, we plug it in where the gas tank is. It, it, you know, it's going to take time before we put the plug at the right spot. Uh, and, and this is true with anything. With television, you know, television in, in the 40s, 50s, all they did is they filmed live bands and said, oh, there's TV, whereas today, none of us would have the patience to watch that, and we'd want to see it live band live anyway. Or even the first newspapers that went online, it was just look like the front page of a, a newspaper as opposed to exactly. more mobile platforms. That's exactly right. So these are, I should say, non-technical issues. You could say part of it is user acceptance. Part of it is also make, figuring out the economics so it's you know, self-sustaining. Those were the kinds of issues that you know, the people at Med Robotics had to figure out. Now, this, I, so, so I didn't, so I don't want to take credit for, for, for their work. I, I wished I did. I wished I spent more time thinking about it with them. The only thing I can say where there was some help is with the FDA. So our experience with the FDA, I thought, went really nicely. I felt it was a very comrade, camaraderie. It, was, it wasn't antagonistic. And you know, I genuinely had the sense that they want to see good things happen. They're not going to overlook any danger, of course. And I had to go down to the FDA a couple of times to explain to them you know, what a robot is. And if you look at the previous medical robotics that came before our robot, all of the um, FDA clearances, indications, don't have the word robot in them. Okay, it was, it was us who convinced the NDA, excuse me, the FDA, that robot doesn't equal autonomy or doesn't equal full autonomy. And in doing that, we were able to be the first 
medical robot to clear the FDA with the indication robots uh, in its title. So I guess you can say in the eyes of the United States government, I invented the first medical robots. Wow. Uh, however, that's not true. You know, first medical robot came with RoboDoc, and there were great people like Russ Taylor and, of course, Nabil Simon, who built medical robots well before I was. And in that spirit of trying to enable innovation, unlock innovation, your next company, Hebi, is really focused on the modular parts that could be put in all sorts of different applications, be them medical or industrial or what have you. So the mission of Hebi Robotics is to accelerate the development of robotics in general. And we believe we can do that through modular systems. In other words, if you could put a robot together out of modules that connect and interconnect as if you're playing with Lego, of course, this isn't Lego because Lego's a toy. This is a sophisticated system. You can build good robots really fast. And that's Hebi's mission. My motivation for co-starting Hebi with my students was to keep my students together. Interesting. It was with med robotics, I really thought, you know, we're going to change the way surgery is going to happen. And, and I believe we will. But with heavy robotics, you know, one of the great things about being in academia, in particular Carnegie Mellon, is you have these wonderful people, these students who come and, and they, it's, like giving a, it's like getting a gift every week. They figure things out, they make things work, and they have these wonderful demonstrations. It's just a pleasure to, to talk about their work. And every so often I get to provide input. But I was getting sick of losing them. So I had this this group of you know, four other students who were just who, who can go off and do whatever they want. And I said, hey, let's start a company together. And we got some good sponsorship from, uh, from DARPA, from Gil Pratt, to get to jumpstart the company. And uh, you know, we all had this shared vision of making this uh, company go. So, so what's funny is, yes, we have a mission, you know, make robots, accelerate the development of robots. I had my selfish agenda. I wanted to keep the band together. And I should say these students, my former students, you know, there's a quote in one of the Star Wars movies, you know, the masters become the student or the student becomes, who knows? And then original master dies. That's me. These guys, you know, I learned from them. You know, they're my mentors. I'm just so grateful that they're still here and they even help with my teaching. I don't know how perverse that can be. You know, my, the startup company helps me teach my class. Well, so that's really where I was tr hoping to try to get to in this conversation, which was basically... I look at a curriculum vitae, and we like literally haven't even touched on half of the stuff. There's, you know, another uh, another startup. There's your teaching. There's the Arm Institute. There's all these different things that you're touching. And from an outsider's perspective, it seems complex. But at the same time, I can completely see how they all feed on one another. Because oh, you know, uh, an exceptional student that's interested in a certain air arena, you can chart them a path into one of these other startups where they can continue to explore the idea or talk them through the founding of a company and vice versa, bring that uh, knowledge in, in a private domain back into the classroom. So I, I see the connective web, but what I guess I'm really curious about is managing that complexity given the amount of balls you seem to have in the air. Oh, you can do anything with great people. It's just that simple. The people around me are great. Put the trust in them? It's not put the trust. You have no choice. Uh, no, you just have to get great people. And, and that's, that's the challenge. And so why have you attracted so many great people to be around you? The best explanation I have for why I have great people around me is because last year I had great people around me. Okay. And they attracted the great people. So it's an inductive proof, I guess. You know, I have a wonderful lab, that, and, I, and I should point out, I also co-direct this lab now with my dear colleague, uh, Matt Travers, and we just 
we're able to get wonderful people, you know, from I don't know how many years ago, and it just feeds on itself. So maybe the only thing I do that might be right is I don't do anything stupid. That's not nothing. Yeah, it's it might be. You know, you know, in one of my classes, I teach this undergraduate class, and the TAs, a little little army of TAs, and some years it's more than half women, and the head TA has been a woman for the last I don't know seven years, and you know, I, I got interested in trying to figure out how. You know, what are more things we can do to attract women to academia uh, and, uh, uh, and to science, technology, and all, that, and all that stuff? Of course, the people who are doing it the best is this uh, organization called Girls of Steel, headed by Patty Rote and George Cantor. George is another professor in Robotics Institute. What they're doing is real impact, you know, girls K through 12. With what I'm doing, uh, you know, I have some you know, little ideas that, that I, I like to try to implement to, to attract, you know, the right people to academia. So I started interviewing some of the women that worked for me, and I asked, you know, you know, why? And they pretty much just said, very politely, you don't do anything stupid. In, in other words, they said, you listen, you take our ideas, and everything they're saying is, but I do that for everybody. And they're like, yeah, not everyone does that for women. And, I, and, I, and that, that was a surprise. Maybe it's a generational thing. But the secret to our success has been the people. And then the follow-on question you're probably going to ask is, how do you motivate them? And the answer to that is, well, the best way to motivate people is get motivated people. That's fair. So I actually want to touch back on the not doing anything stupid thing. I've, I've always said this literally like from the earliest days of starting Piper, I would talk with Hannah about the concept via negativa, which is not so much creating the optimal thing, but just the removal of mistakes. It's not that we want to create the show with the most exceptional kind of moment. We just want to create the platform that doesn't, you know, obviously have an unforced error in the audio or the guest or the video right, or right. what have you. And that's deeply unsexy to say it in, in, in the, that what type of way, but it works. It's the only thing I know uh, is that we, you know, it's, it's pretty much just comes down to common sense, common courtesy, listening, everyone's an individual. And then not only listening to what's, what's going on, but also listening to their technical challenges, listening to their problems, both their technical problems, as well as their interpersonal problems. You know, one thing I, I really believe in is, you know, is try to empower people. So either if, if it's my students who are having problems with the students or even staff, when they come to me, uh, what I tell them is I say, well, you try saying this, you should try doing this. It's not because I don't want to get involved. You know, it would be easier and t less time consuming if I get involved. But I want to empower them so this way, when they do have to come to me it, you know, to, to, you know, to solve it, uh, it's more forceful now. You know, you know, there's more of a moral reason why I'm there. And when you get people to sort of solve problems amongst themselves, you know, they grow, they learn. You know, it's funny, I have this colleague, John Kagan, you know, he, he, one lesson he, he once uh, told his students is, you know, you don't have to be friends, you don't even have to get along, you just have to work together. And once they realize that, the funny thing is, they end up becoming friends and they end up working well together. But, but uh, it, it's just figuring out how to empower people to do what they want to do more. Right on. Well, I want to talk about uh, the empowerment of the ARM Institute in particular, what that's focused on, summarize that for people, and then we can aim towards wrapping up because I need to be respectful of your time. But for contextualizing the ARM Institute, which is another thing that you've co-founded, can you uh, explain for people how that works? So I'm going to say two things about the ARM Institute because uh, I, I want to acknowledge something about my students. Okay, so first, the ARM Institute, the Advanced Robotics for Manufacturing Institute, is one of 14 manufacturing institutes it's a program that President Obama started 
And the idea was, can we bring manufacturing back to the United States? I actually slightly disagree with that theme. Our goal should be, how do we create new manufacturing in the United States? How do we keep the United States on the forefront of innovation in manufacturing so we're always ahead? If another country has manufacturing capability that we somehow lost, maybe it's because we're not good at it. Maybe they're good at it. You know, let's play to our strengths. Now, of course, if there's deficiencies in our manufacturing base, we should address them, fix them so we can be as strong as possible. But I think the goal of these institutes should be, be the innovators of manufacturing, be the creators. I want us to be both effective competitors as well as collaborators with our peers in Europe and Asia. So these manufacturing institutes each have a theme. You know, one of them is on additive manufacturing, in other words, on a type of electronics, uh, one's on textiles. The one that I uh, co-founded with um, uh, Gary Fetter and George Jarakos, uh, that one on is on ro robotics, hence advanced robotics for manufacturing. And the goal there was to empower with robotics technology and education, empower the American worker to be that much more productive so the worker can be cost-effective against workers in nations that where income is, it, it may be lower. But it's also uh, to, you know, to create new opportunities and hopefully you know, new jobs. The other thing to note is, and people are surprised to hear this, there's no manufacturer of industrial robots in the United States. All industrial robot robotics manufacturers are either in Europe or in Asia. I would not have guessed that. Yeah, none are in America. And I think we need to create an ecosystem that will allow manufacturing robotics to emerge in the United States, where it should, because we're an innovative group. Where are the hubs for industrial robotics manufacturing? Uh, I would say uh, Germany, Denmark, China, Japan, Korea. Interesting. I would not have guessed that. So, so you asked a question earlier about this web, you know, how things interact. So I, I need to acknowledge that you know, I've been very lucky to have all these wonderful people around me. So one of my students, his name is David Rawlinson. A lot of what we talked about when we were starting heavy robotics together, uh, those ideas I used when promoting uh, the ARM Institute and the proposal for it. Okay. So some of his ideas were central to our proposal, which I have to acknowledge without which I don't know if we would have been selected. That's fair. So it sounds like the real unlock here, in addition to having the people that you trust, the quality of people that are surrounding you in this type of web, is also just buying into the notion of a rising tide kind of lifts all ships. So if, you know, Silicon Valley or one of these other communities that have a very specific uh, skill set or kind of um, machinery for building human talent and human capital in a specific domain, if Pittsburgh kind of wins on that level, then you're going to be experiencing wins as a part of that. Yeah, so one of the things I also wanted to say about heavy robotics that was pretty interesting is all the founders are not from Pittsburgh. Okay. And I think half the company, I mean, maybe it's not true anymore, but up until some point, half the company wasn't from Pittsburgh either. We all came from different places and stayed here because of the robotics, artificial intelligence ecosystem for which we have to give Carnegie Mellon, University of Pittsburgh, and other universities uh, credit. Right on. Um, so if folks want to learn more about all the different companies that you're building, you, um, and just keep tabs of, on all this exciting stuff, uh, what digital coordinates can we provide for people? 
So I have a couple of different websites uh, that I, I like to point people to. So one of them is biorobotics.org. So it says B-I-O, like in biology, bio, and then robotics. So biorobotics.org is one good site. I think the Robotics Institute has a nice website. So www.ri, R for robotics, I for institute, www.ri.cmu.edu is good. Uh, of course, cmu.edu is another good website. I have a personal one called uh, chosit.com just because it's easy to register your last name and have it, but pretty much it just points to my yeah. my lab site. I have a country singer with my name that he's already claimed all the Aaron Watson yeah. websites. Well, so we have a last name that's made up, then yeah. it's pretty easy to uh, get the website. Nice. We're going to link that all in the show notes. You can find it at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast or in the podcast app. You're probably listening to this right now. Uh, but Howie, before I let you go, I'd love to give you the mic a final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. So I have a couple of challenges I'd like to see happen. So for one thing is I want to see more students, K through 16, I guess, helping other students learn. And that can include not only within your own school, but outside of your school. It would be really great to see people who are doing well in school go to a school where the resources aren't as good as theirs and help teach. I'd, I'd like to see that. And that's part of mastery, too, is not just learning it, but being able to convey it to someone else. Yeah, that's a very good point. It, it, it'll be good for our society, rising ships, rising tides raise all ships, and, of course, the mastery. I agree. I, I like to see that challenge. I also want to see more people... Uh, go into fields that they otherwise may think are too difficult. You know, so STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, people shy away from it because they think it's difficult, but it really isn't. It's, just, it's, just, it's like learning a new language. Of course, I would like to have people figure out applications for snake robots because I'm struggling to find that too. Uh, so they can always email me their ideas. Uh, and then being able to f uh, uh, just get talented, interested people to, you know, Apply to college, and, and if you li like robots, apply to Carnegie Mellon. Right on. Well, I, I want to touch on that really quickly. The applications, particularly of a snake robot or just robotics in general, to me, as an outsider, it seems like focus would be a very difficult challenge because it's almost like the internet itself, where it's like, well, we could create this website or that website, this software, that software. Um, it seems like there's so many different potential domains of application for a robot and a failure to focus is kind of where you either you either stagnate or don't necessarily make the really kind of um, society altering progress. So I would imagine that that's one of the challenges of uh, being in the robotics field. So I don't know if the challenge is being able to focus as a more in identifying the right problem. Even the internet, and again, this is about in, uh, innovation. You know, who knows how things innovate? And, I, and then, um, your theories are as good as mine. But even with the with the internet, you know, people had focused applications at first, built up an intuition, and then they were able to it was able to explode in, into what we have today. So I think robotics is also in that early stage, and it, it may stay in that early stage longer than the internet because you know there's a physical world involved. That makes sense. Well, Howie, I really appreciate you taking some time to be on the podcast. I learned a ton. I'm excited by all the work you guys are doing. Well, thank you for your interest in my group's work. I really appreciate it. Right on. We just went deep with how he chose it. Whoever out there has a fantastic day.
Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the end of my interview with Howie. If you enjoyed it, then I am confident that you would also enjoy our past interview with Chetan Richley. He is the CEO and co-founder of Locomation, a company focused on autonomous semi-trucks. They have had a really successful last couple of years, and you'll hear Chetan talk about how he has not only developed genre-defining technology, but recruited the investors, team members, and regulators necessary to make his company a reality. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.